Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm in a circle in Cuyahoga Falls, and today I'm going to be reading from James 1, 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors. If you're here in the West service uh, or over in the East service or watching online, I'm thank you so much for spending time with us this weekend. I am really excited to continue our sermon series through the book of James. This is week two of 10 weeks we'll be spending going through James this fall. By the way, if you haven't yet, we really want to encourage you in the atrium this morning to pick up one of the James devotionals or study guides that we have written to go along with this sermon series. We really view it as a both and kind of thing. If, if all you're hearing is the sermon, you're missing out on, on what we hope will be a helpful portion of what God has for our church and shaping the way we think and the way we live from the book of James. So if you haven't picked one up, pick one up and jump in uh, to week two. Before we begin this morning's sermon, though, I want to point you to an event that I'm a part of that I'm really excited about that I hope you'll come to, and that is coming up this fall, our Faith and Work Summit. Uh, you know, you're going to spend a third of your life at work. Now, that, that is a significant portion of your life. And so if we don't learn how to connect our faith in Jesus to our work, we are missing out on a major part of what it means to follow Jesus and to experience what God is doing as he advances his kingdom. So this fall, we've put together an event led by six speakers from inside and outside the church, three men and three women from a variety of fields, all very successful in those fields that are gonna be speaking to you about their own experiences and the lessons they've learned about connecting their faith to the field that they are in. You're gonna hear from all six speakers. There's gonna be a Q&A panel. We're really excited about the help it will offer. Also, for the first 60 people that sign up and opt into this, each one of our speakers is gonna be hosting what we're calling a networking lunch. So around the building, they will be with 10 people who have signed up for this, eating lunch with them, sharing uh, stories and experiences in a more intimate setting, and allowing you an opportunity to ask questions, to get to know them, and maybe even leave with a contact for your circle to have gotten a little wider, professionally speaking. There's a lot of people have told us how excited they are that we're talking about faith and work, so I just wanna encourage you to vote with your feet by showing up 
up, not only are you saying, I'm excited about this, but you are paving the way for us to do more and more things uh, in this direction. So please make a point to be at the Faith and Work Summit, invite friends, uh, and be there. Uh, you can sign up in the atrium in the Next Steps area or online. Hope to see you there in a few weeks. Uh, if you have your Bible, though, I'd love for you to open it up or turn it on and scroll or turn to James chapter 1. We're going to pick up where Pastor Joe left off last week as we continue our study through the book of James. And if you're a note taker, I have an outline that I'll give you. Uh, and if you're not, you just kind of have these in your head to plot our time together. Three simple points, very simple, and they go like this. I want to talk about ugly religion, beautiful religion, and how to become beautiful. Okay, Ugly religion, beautiful religion, and how to become beautiful. All right, let's start with the first one, ugly religion. I bet when you hear me say that, ugly religion, that you have something that pops in your head. An image, a person, an experience. I think most of us have had an encounter or encounters with something we would call ugly religion. A family member, a friend, a colleague, a church experience. In fact, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't know any ugly religious people, I haven't had any experience with any ugly religion, I wouldn't look at the person next to you. Just in case you are who they have in mind. Uh, ugly religion is everywhere. It is not hard to think of. It's not hard to point to. It is not, unfortunately, hard to experience. It is also one reason why so many people turn away from Christianity. It's the experience that they've had with the church they grew up in, with Christians in their family, Christians at work, Christians in their social circle, that those interactions have just been so ugly, that expression of Christianity is so ugly that they have turned away. Uh, ugly Christianity is like when you pull the top off the milk to smell it to see if you can still drink it. Okay, when you can't, you know pretty instantly. Not that I do that anymore. I have five kids, so I make them do it. But when the milk is bad, I can tell by the look on their face. That is the experience of ugly religion. But listen, if that's what's keeping you from considering Christianity, I want you to realize that no one hates ugly religion more than the God of the Bible. And one of the ways you know that is that the Bible talks about it all the time and in scathing ways. It offers a pretty healthy rebuke of ugly religion. And one of the passages that does that really well is the one in front of us right now, James chapter 1. In fact, I want to show you three things that James says are true about ugly religion that he hates, and I think he hates it because God hates it. Three things, very simple. Number one, Ugly religion is hateful. It's hateful. Look at what he says at the very beginning of our passage. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And if some of you have been waiting for God to give you a sign as to whether or not you should get off social media, there it is. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ugly religion is angry all the time. And the reason why is because ugly religion is constantly saying the world is broken and they are the problem. 
The world is broken and it's those people doing those things that are breaking the world. This anger, this hatred is self-righteous. It's like when I get mad at you because you do something uh, you shouldn't do when you're driving in front of me. You know who you are. And in that moment when I get angry with you, what I'm saying is I know how to drive and you don't know how to drive and why can't you just be more like me? I'm not just angry, I'm not just hateful, I'm self-righteous. Why can't those people messing up the roads just be more like me? Why can't those people messing up our country just be more like me? Why can't those people breaking our world just be more like me? Ugly religion is hateful, self-righteous, and angry. And it doesn't lead to anything good. This is like when you go downtown this uh, winter to see what it will be the beginning of what I'm sure is a championship season for the Cavaliers. And when you go downtown, there'll be inevitably someone down there with a bullhorn or a sign, and they'll be saying, you're going to hell. Turn or burn, repent or die. And I've never been in that experience where they're yelling and yelling and yelling and somebody goes, wait, what did that guy just say? We're going to hell? Man, I need to talk to him to learn more. No one responds that way. It's hateful and it's angry and it's self-righteous and it's awful. It's ugly. The second thing James says about ugly religion is it's hypocritical. He says, don't be a hearer of the word only, but, but be a doer. He has in mind a kind of religion where you hear and know truth that you don't live. By the way, I hate to tell you this, he's talking to us, people who come every week and sit and hear sermons from the word of God. He's saying, don't just hear, do. Ugly religion knits pillows and puts posters on the wall that say, love your neighbor, but they don't do it. It says, love your enemies, but they don't. Ugly religion says one thing but does another. Stands for one thing verbally but stands for another in terms of how they live their lives. Ugly religion isn't just hateful. It's utterly and completely hypocritical. The third thing James says about ugly religion is it honors all the wrong people. He will say at the end of this passage, pure and undefiled religion is this, that you take care of widows and orphans in their time of need. But if that's pure and undefiled religion, then it follows that impure and defiled religion is religion that doesn't do that. Well, if they're not honoring widows and orphans, who are they honoring? Well, the earlier in last week's passage, we learned that they're honoring the rich. That ugly religion makes much of who the world makes much of. It values the rich and the powerful and the elite and ignores those who bring little to no value to the ministry itself. In fact, I know of churches where they decide whether or not they're going to park your car in the front or the back based on how new it is and what kind of car it is. And what are they saying? 
that at this church, they're honoring the rich, the powerful, the elite, the socially secure. James says, ugly religion always values the wrong people. It always honors the wrong people. It misses all of the right people. And I want you to hear this. James is offering a scathing rebuke of ugly religion. He says it is hateful and hypocritical and it honors all the wrong people. He will go on to say in this passage, it is worthless. So if ugly religion, if your experience with ugly religion is what's keeping you from considering Christianity, just know this, the God of the Bible hates it too. He sees its anger. He sees its hypocrisy. He sees its honoring of all the wrong people. And he hates it. Ugly religion is just that. It's ugly. And we are right to be repelled by it. We are right to hate it. We are right to push back from it. But here's the question. Is it always ugly? And the answer to that is no. James does have a category for my second point, beautiful religion. Now listen, I know that in evangelical circles, we are prone to saying things like, it's not about religion, it's not a religion. But listen, religion is only a dirty word if we make it one. In the end of this passage, James will say, pure and undefiled religion is this. He has a category for beautiful religion. And by the way, so do we. Because some of the people who have shaped human history, who have made the world a more beautiful place, are people who have been driven by their faith. It was the beauty of their faith that spilled over into the beauty of their life, which led to the beauty of our world. James has a category for that. By the way, if you're here and you're a Christian, you do too, because my guess is however you came to faith in Christ, some Christian's life, their testimony, and the beauty of it was part of what led you to Christ. You saw something different, something beautiful. It is possible to have a beautiful kind of religion. Well, what does that look like? Well, I think James gives us an opposite three things in this passage. So beautiful religion is not hateful, it's humble. Right after James says, hey, don't, don't think that your anger produces the righteousness of God, he will say, instead, be meek. What does it mean to be meek? Meekness is to adopt the posture of a servant to be humble. Meekness is saying the world is broken and it's possible I am part of the problem. Meekness is not showing up with something to say, but showing up to listen. Meekness is saying, could you let me know how I'm contributing to the brokenness of this family or this relationship or this community? Meekness is a posture of being deferential, of valuing people as more important than yourself. James says ugly religion is hateful and self-righteous and pits us versus them, but beautiful religion comes to the table and says, the only person I want to talk about is me. How can I love more? What can I fix? What have I gotten wrong? How can I be restorative? James says, ugly religion is evil because it pits one against the other, but beautiful religion is a religion of reconciliation. 
It's a religion of meekness. Can you imagine, by the way, what that would feel like and sound like in a culture of one side screaming at another all the time? Of a person showing up to listen, to understand, to hear, to respond, to confess, to own? The second thing James says is different is that beautiful religion is not hypocritical. Instead, it's honest. It's not hypocritical, it's honest. In fact, when he talks about being a hearer and a doer, he compares it to a guy looking at himself in a mirror and then walking away and forgetting what he saw. He says that being a hearer and not a doer is like saying to your coworker, do I, at lunch, do I have something green in my teeth? And when they say, yeah, you say, great. You know, every Sunday before I come here when I'm going to preach, I stand in front of Amy in the living room and I say, how do I look? I got to get up in front of a bunch of you. And she always finds like three or four things that are wrong with me. But I've never once said to her, you know, this morning, she's like, I don't, your hair's weird. And I didn't look at her and go, weird is what I'm going for. I said, what? What's wrong with my hair? And I ran to the bathroom in the mirror and I tried to fix whatever she was describing you see, beautiful religion is honest about who we really are. It recognizes that the brokenness of our world doesn't just live outside of me, it lives inside of me. Beautiful religion is open to critique. It's open to hearing that we were wrong, open to hearing that we could have been better, that we could have done more. It invites a conversation about who we really are. And the third contrast, James says, is that beautiful religion honors the right people instead of the wrong people. Listen, when he says pure and undefiled religion takes care of widows and orphans in their time of need, he is intentionally choosing two groups of people who provide very little value to the one who is loving them. Listen, I have five children. I got to tell you, they're parasites. They eat all your food and they take all your money. I think some of you are teachers and you just have meetings about how to get more of my money. I gotta buy a t-shirt for this and a trip for this and a this for that and they're always having their hands in my pockets. Listen, you don't love kids because of the value they bring to you. So when a Christian family brings a child that isn't even theirs into their home, through the wonderful work of foster care or adoption, what they are saying to the child is that I'm honoring you not because you bring value to me. You're not the fancy car in the front parking lot. You don't bring much value. It is about me recognizing the value you already have. Beautiful religion invites relationships of giving, not of taking, of loving, not of receiving love, of saying to another person, you are not alone. You are not isolated. I know your spouse has died. I know you live alone, but you are not forgotten. And your value is still there. James says, ugly religion asks, what can this person do for us, for our cause, for our ministry, for our religion? But beautiful religion says, what can we do for them? I want you to see the contrast between the two. Ugly religion is awful. We know that. We've experienced it. We've lived it. Beautiful religion is wonderful, but it's hard. If you don't believe me, ask yourself, how many beautifully religious people do you know? 
how many of us would say, that's exactly what people would say about me? Not many, right? And that begs the question then, my third point, how do you become beautiful? Ugly ugly religion is so easy, so natural, so fitting for the world we are in. How do I become beautiful? How do I become something different? Well, I just want you to see right off the bat that the answer is not you do something. It is not trying harder. I need you to understand that. Here's why. Because when we think of self-improvement, we tend to think of what we do. So that if I want to get in shape, I think what I need to do. And if you're anything like me, you can't start today because Monday's a better day to start, right? And it's the end of the month. It's better to start at the beginning of the month. And really the beginning of the year is the best time to start, right? You're always putting it off. But if you want to get in shape, what you say is I need to join a gym. I need to do the exercises. I need to say no to that late night snack. I need to say yes to this healthy meal. If you want to get your finances in order, you say, I need to say no to that thing I really don't need. I need to say yes to delayed gratification, right? We think of self-improvement as something we have to do. So surely the path from ugly religion to beautiful religion is one of trying. It's one of doing. It's one of effort. But here's the thing. Ugly religion, the harder you try, the uglier you get. Because it's all it's set up for. It only knows how to teach you to hate or be hypocritical or honor the wrong people. So the more you lean into it, the more you become like that. The path to beauty is not a path of doing. It is not a path of doing. Let me give you an analogy that I think will help this make sense. I don't know if you travel very often. I know some of you travel for work. It is amazing to me always that we live in the greatest country in the world, and yet we have some of the worst airports in the world. Like, have you ever been to Kansas City? That airport is awful. I mean, I've been to third world countries that have better airports than Kansas City. Wonderful city, terrible airport. So whenever I'm in an airport and I encounter some beauty, it always sneaks up on me, right? I'm never ready for it. So when I went to the Salt Lake City airport for the first time, I was blown away by their atrium or foyer. I see some of you shaking your heads. You've, you've been there. They have this incredible space where the ceilings are really high. The entire wall is made of glass. You can see across the tarmac to the mountains. I mean, it's just breathtakingly beautiful. And they know because they put chairs right along the window and you can sit there and just kind of look out. And you feel like you're outside even though you're not, which when you've been traveling, feels great. I love it. It's amazing. I was just there for the first time a couple months ago with Amy when we were uh, on a trip together, and it was beautiful. I loved it. And right there in the atrium, they have a grand piano. It's a, a public piano that anyone can play, and those can go either way, you know? Like when I'm sitting there taking in the beauty of the mountains, I don't want to hear you play chopsticks, okay? It ruins the experience, But every now and then at one of these public pianos, you get someone to sit down who knows exactly what they're doing. And that happened when I was in Salt Lake City. A guy sat down and began to play beautiful music. I I don't even know what it was. It was beautiful. And it was amazing what happened when, when beautiful music fills a space like that in a surprising way. It captures everyone's attention. Have you experienced this? 
I mean, people were literally getting up out of their seats and walking to the piano. The guy playing the piano is a stranger to them, and they're just gathering around it because they just want to be close to the beauty. I mean, other people are turning their chairs. They're not even looking at the mountains anymore, which were stunning, and they're, they're turning to face the piano. Guys are sitting at the bar with their back to the bar and their face to the piano, and even people like me who don't get up or turn their chair are taking their AirPods out and closing their books and, and letting their attention go to the guy playing the piano. And it's not forced, it's natural. There's just something so beautiful about it that it pulls you in. A couple months ago, we had an event here. We had a pastor named Scott Sauls from Nashville come and preach, and uh, he did a great job. And he said one thing that really stood out to me. It just kind of lodged itself in my brain. He said, listen, giving up on Christianity because of the Christians you know is like deciding you don't like Bach because you went to a six-year-old's piano recital. He said, listen, Bach isn't broken. That six-year-old is. Because you see, the path to beauty of the Christian life is not one of doing. It is one of being arrested by the beauty of Jesus Christ. Look at what the writer says in James chapter 1, verse 21. It's the most important book, or most important verse in the entire passage we have today. Look at what he says. James 1, 21, this is what he says. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. By the way, let me just stop there real quick and say this. He hasn't been talking about irreligious people doing irreligious things. He's been talking about religion, and he's, this is how he calls it. Filthiness and rampant wickedness. Okay, some of you just need to hear that because you're like, I don't want to think about Christianity because all the Christians I know are, 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 what's the word? Filthy? Yeah. Rampantly wicked? Yeah. He knows. He knows. But look at what he says next. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And then listen, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the path from ugliness to beauty, the path from ugly religion to beautiful religion is not one of doing or trying or accomplishing. It is actually one of receiving. And receiving is a secondary action. You can only receive if something is being given. He also calls it the implanted word, which implies that someone else is doing the planting. What he has in mind is the beauty of the life of Jesus Christ. That when you read about Jesus in the Gospels, you see a life that's not hateful, it's humble. It's not hypocritical, it's honest. It honors all the right people and none of the wrong people. In fact, Jesus' greatest enemies are the ugly religious people of his day. You see the life of Jesus and it is like that piano player in the atrium at Salt Lake City. When you begin to see the beauty of his life, it grabs you, it arrests you, it seizes your attention, it pulls you in close. And then what do you find? Not only that he's beautiful, but why? Why is he beautiful? He's beautiful because he loves you. You see, Jesus came to live an honest and humble and honoring life so that on the cross he might die, not for his hate, but for mine. 
Not for his hypocrisy, but for mine. Not, not, not for his honoring the wrong people, but for mine. Jesus on the cross literally becomes the embodiment of my ugly religion. And he comes up under the judgment and wrath and anger of God, saying to God that he will willingly receive that. And God pours it all out on him. And Jesus dies. And three days later, he rises from the dead. And he says to me, Zach, there is no more anger or wrath or judgment for you and your ugly religion. Instead, if you will grab hold of me on the basis of faith and grace, you will be given my beautiful life in place of your ugly one. So that when God looks at you, he will not see your hate. He will see my humility. He won't see your hypocrisy. He'll see my honesty. He won't see your honoring of all the wrong people. He'll see my honoring of all the right people. Therefore, Zach, you can be loved and welcomed and accepted and embraced by God. Listen, the path to beauty is not trying harder. It's not looking at the Christians around you. The path from ugliness to beauty is one of seeing and celebrating the beauty of Jesus Christ. You become like that person in the atrium in Salt Lake City who can't even tell you why they're standing by the piano. They're just compelled to go where the beauty is. By the way, that's why some of you can't look away right now. That's why you keep coming week after week and people are asking you, what are you doing going to church? And you're going, I don't know. I don't know. Here's why. Because in a world of ugliness, this kind of beauty grabs us. Don't lean away from that. Lean into it. Go to the piano. James says it is able to save your soul. But brother or sister in Christ, hear me when I say this. It's not just talking about becoming a Christian. He's talking about being a Christian. Look at what he says. James 1, 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And then he says this, receive with meekness the implanted word. You see, the planting has already been done. It's implanted. It's not implanting, it's implanted. It's already been done. He's talking to Christians. Here's what he's saying. It isn't just that the beauty of Jesus changes us by, by, by forgiving us and leading us to relationship with God. It's not a one-time thing. It's Jesus saying to us, sit down on the piano bench next to me. It's saying to Jesus, Jesus, not just your beauty in me, but your beauty through me. It's saying to Jesus, I just want to respond in anger. I want to tweet or post in anger. And it's Jesus saying to us, don't you understand that the beauty that's changed your life is that when you had every reason to expect I was angry with you, I wasn't. It's when we're tempted to turn away from honest truth because it cuts us to the core and we want to go back to our hypocrisy that Jesus says, don't you know I love you? Haven't I proven that? So even if I have something really hard to say to you, don't you see it's for your good? It's when we're tempted to run towards honoring people who bring us value that Jesus says, don't you see that the beauty that's changed your life is that when you were at your lowest, I loved you? 
See, the Christian life is a life progressively from ugliness to beauty, not through an act of the will, not through the determination of our minds and our hearts, but rather simply this, the beauty that has saved us continues to arrest us. It continues to work in us and through us so that we say to Jesus, I want to be more like you because what you are, who you are, what you've done, what you will do, who you will be is beautiful to me. Not through an act of the will, but through an act of receiving. Let me pray for us. Father God, I'm so grateful to you that everything you ask of us, you provide for us in Christ and through your Holy Spirit. Jesus, who is himself the word, the gospel, the spirit who has taught us to see his beauty, and to grab hold of it. Spirit, would you continue to work in us, leading us progressively from ugliness to beauty for your glory, for the good of our neighbors, and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.